Breezy Podcast. I'm Andy Little, joined here with uh, two of my good friends, John Casey and Drew Kalnow. We are going to be talking about some sticky situations, or some, a sticky topic, I guess. I don't think the situation's it. sticky at all. The topic is. Yeah. <laughs> true. 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 Um, the situation is kind of sticky now, too. Vomit and they stick to the ground. That was me yesterday in a hotel room, but that's fine. For a different reason. So, Andy, what are we talking about now that we've talked about stickiness? So, we are going to be talking about opioid prescribing. So, it's the, it's the elephant in the room right now in emergency medicine. Um, we're here in D.C. We advocated for it yesterday. It's a very sleepy, slow-breathing elephant. That's right. I have noticed. But it's easily reversed with naloxone at times. Uh, yes, yeah. if you can afford it anymore. If you can afford it anymore, that's true. That is true. So I guess from an from an opiate epidemic, um, what's your when you when you hear opiate epidemic, John? What do you what do you think about? Well, you know the the statistic that we use, you know, almost all of the world's narcotics for our measly population here in the United States is is probably the first thing that, that pops into mind, and that's coupled hand in hand with the number of direct requests I get on a typical shift, um, be it from the patient or the nurse or a PCP who doesn't want to fill the prescription themselves but feels perfectly comfortable sending the patient to the ER to get their prescription filled even though they were fired by their pain specialist who started them on the wrong medicine anyway. Drew. Maybe I have a thought about it or two. Maybe you have a thought about it or two. Maybe just a little bit. Drew, what do you think? So I just cringe. Um, I become angrily ill, uh, similar to yesterday. Uh, you know, it, it, this is this is a sticky situation, truly, because um, on one hand, we are told and almost mandated to treat pain, and unfortunately, for a lot of us practicing emergency medicine, the expectation when somebody is in pain is that they they are going to receive narcotics. Not my expectation is not to give narcotics, but the expectation of the patient is to receive uh, narcotics. Um, but then, on the flip side. Um, there is a very, very real consequence to what these narcotics have done and the opioid epidemic. Now, I think we have to be careful when we talk about an opioid epi epidemic. There's two separate epidemics going on in the U.S., and I think that's something we fail to talk about a lot um, when we talk about this, especially for emergency medicine. There are the people that are reaching for opioid prescription pain medicine because they are addicted to something else, most likely heroin, and they can't get their hands on it, yeah. they need something that is more sustainable or whatever the situation may be. Because so their highs and their lows. They are reaching out for, for prescription pain pills versus the person who has become addicted to prescription pain pills because of some type of medical situation where they were exposed to them and unfortunately um, had, had the situation where it became a, a daily requirement or, or whatever the case may be. Like I can't dependent, yeah. So, so it's a tricky situation, right, because we see both. We're the crosshairs of both those, the crosshairs of both those in the emergency department, and teasing between the two is, is not always necessary, but something we need to think about when we're treating our patients. Is this uh, a pain-related issue, or is this an addiction-related issue, or is this a combination of the two? Um, and so for me, my, my brain literally starts spinning, because I the last thing I want to do is be the cause of somebody becoming addicted. But at the same time, as people that are legitimately in pain that need to be treated, I also want to treat, because the last thing I want to be is the patient um, in severe pain with a long bone fracture, acute appendicitis, whatever the case may be, and not receive the appropriate medicine. Receive yeah. the appropriate medication, and not to be pain free, but to take the edge off the pain and for the pain to be tolerable, or, or even worse, to be a family member yeah. and watch them suffer. Yeah, but I think that's an interesting distinction you point out, too, and it's one of my, my hot button issues, Drew. Is it, I always push them, don't I? You, you do, and, it, and I absolutely agree, but it's one of the phrases that you used. It's the pain free ED. We, we've Perpetuated uh, this this myth 
And, and by we, I, I'm, everyone, everyone is complicit in this. We actually have places called pain-free EDs, where I understand that the intent was to say, we try and use techniques to minimize pain and distractions in procedures. I, I understand that. But, but when you tell a patient, when you tell a person, Pain free that you're going to leave with a zero. That you're going to leave with a zero, or that you know that there's a zero to ten scale. You know, if, if somebody has a femur fracture, there is no zero. There's no in zero pain scale. Yeah. You're you're hoping for a two to four, right? Yeah. So you know, when when you suggest that there is a zero to be had without general anesthesia, you're making a false promise, and 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 it's perpetuated by by everyone. You know, you you have all had anyone listening that takes care of patients has had all to you. Yeah. Every, they're, they're more than two. They're at least four. 2.5. There's a dog There's somewhere. A dog. But, but no, anyone, anyone that's listening now that takes care of patients for sure has had the unresponsive patient that they woke up who asked for more pain medicine. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. You know, I just... Oh, and and this, this, we can get into a whole conversation of how do you approach your pain topics, but I mean, you know, very succinctly, and I 100% agree, and I think what I actually said is that I don't want to get somebody pain-free. That is correct. But, I mean, and, and I try to set that expectation with my patients. I'm going to try to get you feeling better, but I can't get you to be pain-free, and if I did get you to be pain-free, then I have to worry about you breathing and being alive, which is a much bigger deal to me personally than you being in a little bit of pain. Yeah. And I have had that exact conversation with many patients before. Yeah. Almost daily. So I, I, well, the days I don't are the days I'm not working. Right. <laughs> That's right. You're t- tell me your little three-year-old doesn't ask for Percocets in his in his little Pez bin. Fortunately, Teddy has yet to learn uh, Percocets or bike bites, so we've oh, avoided yeah. that so far. Yeah, but isn't it funny how like if Teddy falls down and like hurts his wrist, you you I give him a little, you kiss it, maybe he he gets might, a little motion. He might get some, maybe. He might get some motion, right? And. And and later on he'll be playing with it and he'll see like maybe he'll go to get up and he'll he'll kind of push it and it kind of hurts and he'll just keep going. That's right. right? Like pain is a natural reflex. It's not pleasant, but it's there to protect you. Absolutely. From, you know, to, it is a protective mechanism to keep bad things from happening. You know, right. pain is pain is important. And I think one thing that we've kind of fallen into is is that people want to be pain free. Right. And Drew mentioned having the conversation with people. I feel like sometimes we get so into the road of our job that we just go in and say, hey, we're going to get you some medicine. You'll get feeling better. Yeah. Rather than describing what that medicine is going to be, explaining how we're going to approach their pain. And in a lot of cases, explaining that you will go home with a painful syndrome, but we'll give you something to relieve your pain. But pain is actually a good indicator that something's worse. It's a good reminder that, oh, hey, you can't run on that. Hey, you can't use that like you normally would to help in your healing. Yeah. So, yeah. It- and, you know, the unfortunate thing, too, with that is uh, the number of patients that are allergic to the air, allergic to the direction east, allergic to aspirin and Motrin and, you know, who essentially the only medicines they have left on their list are, coincidentally, opiates. opiates. Um, and how you have, how you address that, um, you know, which is a whole other, you know, a whole other conversation to be had. but. So, uh, so with this epidemic, you know, there's a lot of rules in place. Um, we happen, we're lucky enough to practice in Ohio that 
has Ohio ASAP and uh, the State Board of Pharmacy came up with some rules. Well, let's be clear, they're, they're guidelines. They're sorry, that's, they're, they're, they're these guidelines. Are these are prescribing yeah. guidelines. Yeah. Prescribing is actually telling us what, at this point, although I, I think that down the road this may change, yeah. but telling us what we can and cannot do. But there are guidelines that are suggestive of how in emergency medicine we should, one, address these people, um, how we should evaluate them both for their medical illness but also for their possible addiction and use of narcotics in the form of some type of uh, uh, online check system. Uh, each state has their own, or multiple states have their own, and then also then how to, in, in turn, prescribe for these patients. Uh, and these are useful tools that I think a lot of people uh, aren't necessarily aware of because uh, they've either ignored or they haven't been publicized well. Yeah. yeah. No, again, in Ohio, we're lucky that we have a very active state in this. Um, but it was one of the surprising things that Drew and I can talk a little bit about a study that we did, or just a search that we did looking at state opioid guidelines, that it was something that not every state's addressed. Only something like 18 states have a, have a specific... Uh, prescribing guideline for emergency physicians for the acute pain situation, and that's uh, that's deplorable, really. Yeah, and yeah, and you know, being a kind of a policy guy, I, I have very big issues with something that, that you mentioned, Drew, which is the distinction between guidelines and rules. Um, I am in the bingo. Bingo, yes. It's, it's like I get a ding every time. It's a salient point. Should I say Yahtzee? Yahtzee. Um, so when. I think it's very important that, in general, the governing bodies don't dictate how physicians practice medicine. Absolutely. I think it's really important because there are case-by-case -case examples where prescribing someone more than, say, a 72-hour supply of a medicine or prescribing an opioid for someone under the age of 16 might actually be medical or giving additional narcotics to somebody who is already on them Correct. for an acute episode. Yeah. yeah, it might only not be medically appropriate, but also goes to the heart of what we do, which is ethically appropriate, which is you know taking good care of patients. And when you have providers that are afraid or or are unwilling to step outside of of something because it is now officially a rule and they can have actions taken versus a guideline which is really designed to pause and let you think about it. Think about why you're doing something different. Um, I think those are two very different things and I, and I have very strong feelings against one and for the other. Yeah. And I, I think it was being here, you know, Steve Stack from the President of the AMA gave a good talk yesterday or two days ago at the during the opening ceremonies and the opening credits of this conference that and we're by at. being here, he means leadership and advocacy. Leadership and advocacy in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C. Um, but he gave this, what I thought was poignant is, is that as physicians, it's our, our goal is to first take care of the patient, so treat patients' pain, but think of non-opioids as a first line, and then discuss the risks of addiction with our patients. And I have to admit that when he said that, that was something that I bring up, but it's not something that I use routinely use in patients that I send home with more than a 72-hour supply, knowing that they're going to need it. Like somebody with an ankle fracture, but I'm seen on a Thursday, then we'll get seen by ortho till Monday or Tuesday. I'm not going to be cruel and send them home with just eight pills, you know. And so I think it's that having that dialogue with our patients, I think, is one of the true answers to this problem from our perspective is to start a dialogue to get them to understand what we're, what our concerns are in terms right. of that. Right. The problem always comes in the patient who's already on opioids and is allergic to everything, whether they're allergic or not, but they say they're allergic to everything, and then they are demanding more of what they currently get or what they're used to getting. Right. So... So I'm really, I, I, I don't know, because this is not true all the time, but when somebody demands pain medicine, that's the person that I have very 
detailed conversations with. Sometimes they're very short conversations because they are not well received by the person I'm having it with. There's also the person that gets very little pain medicine for me because I refuse to be demanded yeah. uh, to give somebody pain yeah. medicine. We are not um, McDonald's. Yeah. Right. This yeah. is not a have it your way situation. And, and at some point, uh, certainly I'm willing to give most people a round of treatment in the ER without much, much thought about it as long as their initial complaint seems to justify the treatment of pain medicine, but at some point you have to have uh, some actual evidence of an acute process in order to continue to be treated. Yeah. And somebody that has a benign examination, normal lab evaluation, normal imaging, um, loses the ability to be demanding of pain medicine because I become very suspicious that there's ulterior motives going on. Um, so, you know, initial evaluation, all things being, being fair, treat once, but the second and third time you're going to treat somebody, and when somebody becomes more and more aggressive about wanting pain medicine, that's when red flags really, really start coming up in my mind. John, how do you approach those people? The people demanding pain medicine? Um, I, so interesting, I kind of use more often than not a, a psychological approach. I generally pull up a chair really, you know, close to them and sit. And I, and I start off just by saying, look, I'm your doctor. I'm here to take care of you. And my specific job as your doctor is to evaluate you for an emergency medical condition. I'm happy to address your pain, but recognize that I'm also a human. If you speak to me ill, if you speak to me in a mean way, if you speak to me and the nurses by yelling or cussing or acting out, you are far less likely for me to treat you lovingly, not appropriately, but lovingly, than if you actually treat me like a normal person, just with the same respect that I'm treating you right now. And it's interesting how that conversation can immediately, in my experience, help me differentiate the person that is just so frustrated and in pain that they have lost their mind and are now yelling at people, or that are just seeking. Um, and it may not be 100%, but I found it to be a very good, because... It, well, I don't know I could, anyone could refuse the big, loving bear that you are. Right. But you get angry, but angry bear. <laughs> angry bear. Nobody likes angry bear, but everybody loves yeah. friendly John Unfortunately, bear. angry bear, when he, when he comes out, is just... He's not the person to ask for purpose. But, but I think you highlight the thing is, is that if you're civil with people, right. the majority of the time if they're civil back, then yeah. that's a good screening because, of because this person seen, needs some help. I, I have honestly seen people that are yelling and, and are in genuine extremists, right? And, and the deal is that that is part of the reason that you become a physician. You want to be the highest level clinician that you can be and you want to be a good patient advocate. And I'm just going to give a real quick story about a patient I took care of that can illustrate how that bias, how you have to step back and check yourself, right? Mainly because so, you don't want to wreck yourself. Because you don't want to wreck yourself. You, you, I was getting a sign out on a, on a patient. It was, very, it was a rough morning. The turnover was very, very quick. And uh, the physician was still going to be around, but basically was like, you know, can, can you take care of Ben 14? They, you know, I've been in there once. She basically kicked me out. She's just demanding pain medicine. You know, if she wants to leave, that's fine. And, and you know, 7 o'clock at this pretty hospital is also a change of nursing, which is what I consider, like, the deadly time because you get pecked to death with, with questions, right? Because if there's not a good transfer of care, then there's all kinds of loopholes about, you know, what people need and what they want. And, well, my last nurse didn't tell me I couldn't get narcotics, right? So there's that. 
but I go in to see this lady, and she just looks miserable. And she is foaming and cussing at the mouth. I mean, just an unpleasant, like, this is not how I want to start my 7 a.m. shift. And the nurse is just frantic. She's like, get this lady out of my room. I cannot see any other patients because I'm in here, and she's just yelling at me. But my gut says that this lady is, is generally sick. So I kind of have that conversation with her, the, the one that I, that I just told you about. And she just looks at me, and she's like, well, you know, just get out. You know, I'm going to sue you all. And I kind of finally just have a hard heart with her. I just look at her and go, look, lady, you can't even drag yourself out of your urine and feces on your bed. So if you feel like you must sue me, then go ahead. But what we're going to do right now is we're going to take care of you. She'd been to three hospitals recently and been kicked out of all of them because she had a long history of narcotic seeking. It turns out, unfortunately, that today she also had a new diagnosis, which was new onset diabetes, and she was actually in DKA. And her chronic abdominal pain, had worse whatever that was, was now actual abdominal pain. From an actual performance. Right? And, and, you know, one of the things that I got was, you know, well, she's in there. I haven't seen her puke at all. Well, well there's nothing left to puke, right? So, so just keeping yourself open to those possibilities is, is so important. Yeah. You know? yeah, no, it is. No, that it is. And one thing that I, you know, just to add to the patient discussion is that too many times patients will come in, they're getting bounced around and they're very frustrated. You know, they get seen by an urgent care and then they go to their family doctor and they go to another urgent care and then they come to us. And a lot of times they're more looking for resources than pain relief. I had a lady a couple weeks ago came in with leg pain and she was just concerned that this leg pain was more than she had ever had. She had fallen, she had negative x-rays, negative CAT scans, but was having some true pathology. Like I watched her walk, she couldn't bear weight. There was something wrong with her leg that wasn't something we could show with imaging. And what it basically came down to was is that she needed some resources. She, you know, she had tried opiates and they didn't work. She had tried some of the anti-seizure medicines that we use for pain and it didn't work. And she just really wanted to see somebody that she could get an MRI for and see a chronic pain specialist, but her family doctor was like, oh, you don't need one of those, I'll just take care of you, but then he wasn't taking care of her. So so many times it's, people are really not only coming to us for medicine, they're coming for us just for a list of resources or somebody that they can call to maybe get some direction. A direction to go. Um, And although we're not the quarterback of their care, we can be the pivot point for their care to get to the right place. Unfortunately, we become the quarterback for their care most of the time. Yeah, quarterback in a lot of people's care. Having to see everyone and take care of everything. Yeah, and I think the the bigger overriding issue is is this is not one like this is this the icing on the top of the issue of opioid right. epidemic, but I think this was a good discussion for us to at least get people to think about. Yeah. We'll call this part one. Yeah, one quick thing to throw yes. in though, is, and this is my greatest fear, uh, is that the pendulum is going to swing so far as we typically do. Right, we we typically go crazy first, and then we over. And I'm afraid we're going to overcorrect in that land of doing exactly what Drew was saying, which is not treating people that are in legitimate pain because of a fear of opiate addiction. And, and though it is a risk, true pain left unchecked also has significant psychological consequences. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it's something we have to be... I've, you just really have to make sure you're, you're, you're checking yourself on that yeah. before you're actually. Treat them before you treat them. Yeah. That's the hashtag for the episode, treat them yes. before you treat them. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks.